Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. Thank you for joining me. I'm so glad to get to share the next few minutes with you today. I want to see you succeed in life. I want to see you grow in your relationship with Jesus. And we do that huh, many ways, but really by digging into the Word of God. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say this, that we're learning how to live as God's people, and we do this by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Well, today's message comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. But I want to start with a list, a list of some of history's greatest conquerors. And this list has the name and uh, a general time when they lived and then how many square miles they managed to capture. So there's Hernando Cortez at number 10. He lived from 1485 to 1547, and he managed to conquer 315,000 square miles. There's Francisco Pizarro. He lived from 1470 to 1541, and he conquered 480 thousand square miles. There's uh, Mahmud, and he was from 971 to 1030, and he conquered 680,000 square miles. There's Napoleon Bonaparte, right? Uh, 1769 to 1821, he conquered 720,000 square miles. There's Adolf Hitler from 1889 to 1945, and he conquered 1,370,000 square miles, and he lost all that in three years. There's Attila the Hun, year 406 to 453. He conquered 1,450,000 square miles. There's Cyrus the Great, from 600 BC to 529 BC, he conquered 2 million 90,000 square miles. There's Tamerlane from uh, 1336 to 1405. He conquered 2,145,000 square miles. There's Alexander the Great from 356 BC to 323 BC. He conquered 2,180,000 square miles. And then number one on the list is Genghis Khan. You know, from the years 1,162 to 1,000 uh, to 1,227, and he conquered twice, more than twice as much as Alexander the Great at 4,860,000 square miles. Those figures in history, and they're impressive and menacing, they took much including many lives. Yet for all the land and peoples they conquered, none of them could conquer death itself. None of us can conquer death on our own. God offers an invitation for all of us to be able to enjoy and celebrate that death is defeated in Jesus Christ. And you can receive that invitation by trusting in the redemptive power of Jesus. Let's go ahead and read the text from Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. It goes like this. Lord, you are my God. 
I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You made the city a heap of rubble, a fortified town a ruin, the foreigner stronghold a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you, cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like the storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. And we trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 25 is quickly becoming one of my favorite passages of the Bible. It's full of promise and hope. It talks about death being swallowed up. It talks about a great feast of celebration. It talks about justice for the ruthless who seem to always get away with their crimes. As good as Isaiah 25 is, it's even more startling to read it, knowing that it comes on the heels of the judgment and destruction that's described in Isaiah 24. And we do need to hear a little bit of that, because we need the sharp contrast. There's celebration in 25, and, well, it's quite scary in 24. Isaiah 24 begins like this. In verse 1, it says, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for the priest as for people, for the master as for his servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for the seller as for the buyer, for the borrower as for the lender, for the creditor as the credit, as the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered, and the Lord has spoken this word. Isaiah 24 continues on like this and does not let up. As I talked about last week, such passages of judgment are uncomfortable and they are unnerving. This is a low valley of destruction, and it makes the soaring victory of Isaiah 25 all the more wonderful. I like how commentator John Oswalt describes such words. He says this, Judgment and destruction are never God's intended last words. He wishes those words to pave the way for the happier words of hope and redemption. Isaiah 25 is a celebration of the wonderful things that God has done. And just what are those wonderful things? Well, in light of what happened in 24, which is judgment on the earth, we now see these wonderful things as true justice and death defeated. Let's take a few moments to talk about these. There's first, true justice. Justice is a critical issue in the Bible, and in its pages, there are two important perspectives on what God's justice looks like. C.S. Lewis describes this justice and these two views in this way. He writes, first, the Christian pictures the case to be tried as a criminal case with himself in the dock or on trial. The Jew pictures it as a civil case with himself as the plaintiff. 
The one hopes for acquittal, or rather for a pardon. The other hopes for a resounding triumph with heavy damages. In other words, justice is rendered two ways. One, each of us are on trial, we're found guilty in our sin, and an acquittal can be found in Jesus Christ if we'd receive him. But second, the other picture of justice is the people of God. Israelite and Christian struggle alike, and they struggle under the powers of this world. But ultimately, the picture of that justice is that God will bring them justice for all the crimes brought against them, brought against us. It is this second type of justice that is described as a wonderful thing in the first part of Isaiah 25. Verse 2 tells us that the Lord has destroyed the powers of this world. It says the city is now a heap. The fortified town is ruined. The stronghold is no more, never to be rebuilt. This is not just a picture of destruction, but the dismantling of the ruthless of the world. Over and over in our passage, there's this word, ruthless. It's mentioned over and over. And these are those who use power and force at the expense of others to benefit themselves. What a promise we're given. The ruthless powers of this world will be no more and will never be rebuilt. We see history right now. You can look over history and go, boy, it repeats itself. That phrase permeates our culture. History repeats itself. And all of us can see a pattern of evil and wickedness that cycles through human history. Any kind of justice we try to render now, ha, ha. Any time of of, uh, success we try to have against wickedness, it always seems so temporary. The cycle starts again. We still wrestle with sin and evil and wickedness. But Isaiah tells us there will be a day where justice is final. The description is evil will never be rebuilt again. The ruthless will never have power again. For the believer, that begins now. When you become a Christian, when you follow God, when he, when Jesus is your Lord, it starts now. But we look forward to the day when justice becomes final. Well, Psalm 23, when you read that famous psalm, it says, it will have no fear because though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I may be experiencing the dark places of life now, but I am tasting the beginning of your justice, Lord. In the same way, Isaiah describes the Lord as our refuge right now. He's a shelter in a storm, a shade in the heat. The Lord is described as a shelter from the breath of the ruthless. It's there in verse 4. Ultimately, the Lord will silence the voice of the ruthless. (sighs) The wicked will not always look like they're going to win. I know it seems that way now. Especially when you turn on the news and see what's happening with stories of war and terror and scandal and endless conflict and there's power grabs in our world and you feel like the bad guy always seems to be able to win and get an advantage. And sometimes it looks like even if he doesn't win, it's just a matter of time before the next bad guy comes along. You might have experienced this personally in your life with someone who has wronged you and hurt you. It seems like they found a way to win. Whatever you have suffered, know this. God promises true and final justice for his people. It is coming. It is a wonderful thing. For the Christian, this victory has already started. Isaiah promises that victory in full is on the way. 
The second thing this story talks about, this passage of Isaiah talks about death being defeated. Isaiah turns from justice against the ruthless, and he describes the mountain of the Lord and a great feast there. The feast is wonderful, the very best of foods. The feast is as wonderful as it is, though, is not actually the reward in itself, though it is a blessing. The feast is a precursor. Picture a king who wants to make a proclamation, and in history, such kings would gather the most important people of their kingdom together to hear their edict, their proclamation, and they'd throw a party to get everybody to hear, ready to hear this announcement. It's an announcement feast. And what is the announcement? In Isaiah 25, we're told that the Lord will swallow up death. Walter Brueggemann, I love how he has colorfully written it out. He says, God will swallow up death like a great sea monster attacking a smaller fish. God will attack this marauding beast and take it in its jaws and crush it and chew it and reduce it and eliminate it and perhaps even spit it out. Hmm. Death looms over us all like a monster. But it is no monster to God. God will swallow it up. No longer will death haunt the human race. No longer will death limit our humanity. We know death as a destructive force. But death has a far deeper power over people than you know. If death rules over us, and we remove faith from God in our lives, something happens. Death will destroy our individual worth. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5-6 through six tell us this. It says this, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. That's what happened in our world. Without God... If you, have a fa- if you have a life that is secular, uh, with no hope of heaven, your only worth is what you can accomplish right now. After you die, all that's left is maybe a legacy that you can give your community. And our secular world is trying hard. It doesn't even know it. It's trying hard to erase personal worth. And it values, it only seems to value what you can give the group or the community you live in. Without God, for some reason, people feel that all that matters is grabbing as much comfort and pleasure and security and power to escape death as long as possible. And then beyond that, you're left on your own to make whatever meaning you can out of life. And that way of thinking is false. You are not created for death. You are created for life. And that death that we all face right now is swallowed up by God's proclamation. And when it's swallowed up, We also get the message, you and I matter to God. And so God invites all to his proclamation banquet to receive eternal life. I want to point out the the invitation in Isaiah 25 is given to all. That word all shows up several times through the text. The feast is for all people in verse 6. He destroys the shroud that enfolds all people in verse 7 and covers all nations in verse 7. God will wipe away tears from all faces in verse 8. It's an invitation, and it's an invitation for all. But you, on your part, must trust in Him. 
That's what verse 9 tells us, that you must trust in him. And ultimately, if you want the promise of Isaiah 25, if you want to receive the invitation that's given to all, you've got to put your trust in the saving power of Jesus. If you permit me, I want to do something here. I want to take a moment and trace. There's a theme of feasting that goes throughout the Bible. I'm just going to do a very high-level look at it real quickly here. But back at the beginning, in the book of Genesis, when God created Adam, and he placed him in the garden, and he gave him, at that moment, he gave him permission to eat. And he said there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And so we have this moment here. God says, feast. And guess what? There is life with that feast. There's no worries about death at that moment. But then God gave a restriction. Genesis 2.17 says, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And there is a feast accompanied, well, the first part is life, eat from any tree. But the warning says, if you eat the wrong thing, there will be death. And trouble arises when Adam and Eve feast on what they should not. Genesis 3, 6 and 7 says this, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good, good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And that was a feast that brought death. That's when sin entered the picture, and its consequence was death. And now there's another feast, or at least a prevention from feasting. God doesn't want another mistake to happen. It's there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's a feast prevented. That's a feast that is stopped to protect Adam and Eve from taking matters into their own hands again. Infinite life is not our goal. Infinite life, if you're hearing in Isaiah that the shroud of death will be, will, uh, death will be swallowed up, it's not infinite life that's the goal. It's sin remedied. That's the goal. And restoration to God, that is the goal. Life forever in sin is a misery and a type of hell. Now, if you permit me, I'll fast forward a little bit and go to Israel, enslaved in Egypt. They're trying to escape enslavement. It's a picture, actually. They're, they're enslaved by the Egyptians, by Pharaoh. But it's also a picture of humanity trying to escape the enslavement of sin. Now, God proclaims a feast, a Passover feast. And part of that feast is the action of placing the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of the houses of each uh, Jewish family. In Exodus 12, uh, verses 12 and 13, we read this about what that blood's to do. It says, On the same night, this is God speaking, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a feast, the Passover feast, that wards off death temporarily. 
Now, later in Exodus, Moses and the elders of Israel share a meal in the presence of God. I want to read that to you just a little bit here. It's in Exodus 24, 9 through 11. It said, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw God, the God of Israel. Under his feet were like a pavement made of lapis lazuli and a bright blue, bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders in the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. It's a feast. It's a celebration. They get to have a closeness with God, and God holds back death. There's a theme through the, through the scripture of feasting and life, or feasting and death defeated. In the Gospels, Jesus turns the feasting rules upside down, and he shares the table with the most unlovable in society. An invitation is given to all. The question is whether or not they will trust in Jesus. But then in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a statement about the feast that is needed the most for death to be defeated. It's there in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 56, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up on that last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Jesus is the real feast that gives life. You know, whenever we share communion, it is a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, giving his body, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sin. Communion should also be a reminder of the proclamation feast of Isaiah that announces the end of death. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, Jesus is portrayed very clearly as the lamb that was slain, a Passover lamb. It is his blood on the doorposts of the Christian life. It is by him that death is defeated. Revelation 5, 6 says, Then I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain, standing at the center of of the throne. But there's another feast in the book of Revelation that I want to share with you. The wedding feast of the lamb. It's in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, and it goes like this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the God's holy of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. The ultimate result of the wedding feast is the union of God and his people once and for all. True justice is rendered. The ruthless are dealt with once and for all. And yes, death is defeated. Because we read then in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, says, Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And Revelation 21, verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The wedding feast has come and death has been defeated forever. For good measure, that tree of life all the way back from Genesis shows up again in Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 2. Down the middle of the great city, the street, 
down the middle of the great street of the city. Each side of the river, on each side, stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This promise is for you, if you would put your trust in Jesus. If you trust in Him and allow Him to be your Lord and Savior, wherever you find yourself right now, whatever struggle you are in, whatever fear you face, perhaps the news of the world has made you feel like not much is mattering right now. Everything seems to be falling apart. You are invited to God's feast. And His feast says that you matter. Death is defeated and you are not just lost in the sea of history. You, your very self, matters to God. You matter. And now this is how, and now how you live also matters. God invites you to live a life trusting in Him and living for Him. George Herbert writes these words, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So for now, we do still feel the sting of death. Each of us will face death. And we'll lose dear, dear loved ones. But the Christian, trusting in Jesus, knows that death, the sting of death right now is just temporary. Someday at the, wedding of the feast, at the wedding feast of the Lamb, death will be erased forever. And that is good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I lift up the person right now who's hurting, that you're feeling injustice very keenly. Wrong has been done to them. They've been wounded in life. We all see the brokenness of this world anyway, and we see how the ruthless seem to always get their way. And Lord, thank you that you'll bring about true everlasting justice. And I pray for the person who's hurting right now that they would see that you are going to bring justice for them. Lord, thank you for conquering death by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, help each of us to live victoriously. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.